My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And, and this, this is, is Anamorphology. The Invasion. The Visitor. The Encounter. The Message. The Predator. The Capture. The Stranger. The Alien. The Secret. The Android. The Forgotten. The Reaction. The Chain. The Unknown. The Escape. The warning, The Decision. The Slow Departure. The Second Discovery. The Proposed Threat. The Mutation. The Violation. The Deception. The Suspicious Existence. The Unexpected Sacrifice. The Diversion. The Beginning. Okay, so this week we read The Conspiracy. What do you think of it, Gray? I actually, okay, so I I have to say I was a little confused by many things that happened in this book, Mm -hmm. mostly because I think, despite the fact that we have now read more than 30 books in this series, perhaps there are some fundamental things that I am not understanding. Whoa. Um, And so I had some questions. Okay. But I I have to say, I actually really liked a lot of it. In particular, I think it's one of the books that addresses some of my complaints from earlier in the season. Ooh. So talking about casualties and Uh the effect of the war on them, this one takes it like super seriously, which some of the other ones haven't, and I've been complaining about that. This is Apple Grant's response to my complaint. It's so nice when they respond to things that you've said 20 years ago. It's I great. really like when they go forward in the future just to listen to our podcast and not to, like, fix anything, but just to listen to the podcast. Yeah. Um, it's I really appreciate it. I yeah. do, too. I think, you know, do better things with the Time Matrix, you guys. But I appreciate that one well, of the Well, they're not going to use the Time Matrix again, so that's fine. Someday. <laughs> what did you think about it, Jack? I liked it so much more than I remembered liking it. Me too! Yeah! Weirdly, like, I I thought that was going to be the case because I remember, like, reading this section of the series and just being really there for the romances, Mm -hmm. and this was not a book with a lot of romance in it, though more than I've noticed at the time, we'll discuss. But it answered some of my questions from 30, where I was like, do I not like this because I don't remember it? Do I not like this because... It's, like, mostly focused on, like, Marco's internal stuff. Didn't really remember this one. It was mostly focused on Jake's internal stuff. Really liked it. Yeah, I just think this was, like, the diamond in the rough of the Animorph series for me so far in terms Mm. of, like, I went into it with basically no expectations. Yeah. I knew it was, like, okay. I knew it was about Jake's family, so I was kind of excited for the thematic stuff. But, like, I sort of feel like... In a lot of ways, it's sort of like maybe 15 or 16 in terms of like the kind of issues it's tackling, but it was just mm-hmm. like so well executed and like yeah. really tense. I feel like the the focus in on Jake reminds me, I'll talk about it more, but it's like a really good episode of like Breaking Bad where things just Whoa. keep getting worse and worse and worse. Yeah. And it's like, how is Jake possibly going to scramble out of this? Like, it felt like it really earned the situations that it was in. I felt like everything that happened made sense, um, as opposed to 30 where, you know, Marco happens to see his mom and then that, like, lost me for a long time. Like, it felt like this one was like, yeah, okay, this seems like a situation they could easily get out of, but no, they're, the book is earning the difficulty of yeah. what they're facing. It's also like, Jake really has an arc in the series. Like, it's so yeah. cool. I can't, I can't wait to talk about it more. So should we talk about what happened in this book? Yes. Okay. Well, yeah. Can you tell us, Jenny? So the book starts, Jake comes home, his mom is running out the door, It's like, your great-grandfather just passed away, we're all going to go up to his cabin in the woods, um, in the mountains or whatever, and uh, there's going to be a funeral in a couple days, I'm going now, your father's still at work, you guys will go over the weekend. Jake's like, okay, oh no, that's a bummer, uh, really rough. His dad comes home and tells him and Tom that they're going for like four days. And Tom, of course, like flips out because 
he is a controller and he can't be away from the year pool for that long. So he needs to find a way out of this. He tells his dad he doesn't want to go. His dad's like, no, we're all going as a family. And Jake's like, oh no, this is going to cause a huge problem. So he goes out, finds Marco. Marco's like, you, you left them alone. So they rush back and find that they've gone to a meeting of the sharing. Cause Tom told his dad's like, I have sharing responsibilities. I can't go. So Tom took his dad to a meeting in the sharing to explain like why he couldn't fulfill those responsibilities. But of course, really he's going to turn him into a controller. So Jake kind of freaks out and is like, we have to go. We have to stop the meeting. And Marco's like, you need to not imperil our entire mission over your father. I understand your father's important to you, but like you are not thinking clearly. And so they managed to find the meeting of the sharing uh, by coordinating with Eric Jake wants to attack it. Marco's like, no, we just need to cause a distraction. He like punches out some cars in the parking lot, breaks up the meeting. So Jake is having some difficult feelings about like, you know, he's angry at Marco for trying to take away some of his decision making. He wants to be able to make all the decisions, even though he recognizes he's not thinking clearly about this. They keep watch overnight. The next day, Jake calls himself out of school. Morph's Roach follows his dad to work, just hangs out with his dad all day. Tobias and Axe are there like providing backup. And as his dad is leaving the office, there's a guy who comes up to him in the parking lot and Tobias and Axe are like, what should we do? And Jake freezes and can't come up with an order to give. But then he ends up like jumping on the guy in Roachmorph. Turns out the guy wasn't even a controller. He was just mad about his parking spot. So that whole day, the Yerks didn't make a move, but Jake goes home. His dad goes outside to water the lawn. Jake is nervous. Is like, I'll just morph bird and check things out for a minute. But then Tobias is like, there's a car headed towards your dad. There's a guy with a gun in it. Chapman's driving. Jake's like, oh, no, they're going to try to shoot him in the front yard. But he's in bird morph, so he can't really do anything about it because they don't want the Yerks to know that the Animorphs are doing this. So they're trying to, like, make it seem like they're not sabotaging their efforts here. So Jake demorphs really quickly on the roof, almost, like, falls off the roof in front of Tom, manages to get human just in time, runs to the front yard. is like, hey, Dad, I'll take care of this. And then he sprays the hose at the people in the car because it seemed like they were going to shoot even though Jake was out there. And then recognizes Chapman and is like, hey, Mr. Chapman. And so that attempt fails, but it was a real close call. Then they all get together and there's a lot of like, Jake, you're making bad decisions. You need to step down from this. He's like, no, no, I have a plan. Instead of being on the defensive, we're going to go on the offensive. We're going to kidnap Chapman, distract them. So they kidnap Chapman and set up acts as like the Andalite torturer who's going to get more information out of him. And the Yerks, of course, are like freaking out and looking for him. And they don't have time to worry about Tom's predicament. The next morning, they leave Chapman away to get out of his bonds. And Jake's like, yeah, we're leaving for the thing at noon. Well, I'll meet you guys at the barn. But actually, they're leaving much sooner than that. Jake's just like, tired of dealing with the rest of the group who are questioning his orders. And Jake wants to be able to make the decisions without having to answer to the others. And so they leave for the lake, he and Tom and his dad, and uh, get up to the cabin. And, you know, the family's there. And Jake and Tom have some conversation over their great-grandfather's World War II memorabilia. And Tom steals a Nazi dagger out of the chest of war stuff. And Jake wakes up in the middle of the night and finds that Tom and his dad are sitting at the end of the pier at this lake house, having this like heartfelt conversation. Presumably Tom's like, so sorry, I was being a jerk and not wanting to do family stuff. But Jake can see like the dagger in Tom's waistband. He's like, oh no, this is when Tom is just going to kill my dad so that he can go back to civilization. And Jake 
starts morphing to Tiger in the shadows and is like, I'm going to have to kill Tom. I'm going to have to kill Tom to protect my dad. Before he can do anything, the dock gets like rammed from underneath and Tom and Jake's dad go flying and Jake's dad gets like towed away by the quote unquote undertow, which of course is clearly someone in morph in the water. And then Jake spots dolphin fins and Tom ends up sort of in the shallows with his leg broken. And Jake has to decide if he's going to save him and he's sort of just paralyzed. He's not doing anything. But then the dolphins like push Tom to shore and Jake helps him out and sits with him. And then a, uh, a medevac helicopter comes in and gets Tom. And Jake's like, gee, I should have thought of the solution before. And he goes out into the woods and is like, hey, guys, yep, you're all here, aren't you? And the animorphs all come out and are like, yeah, we're not going to let you do this alone. It was Marco's plan. And Marco's like, yeah, sorry, I know you're probably mad at me. And Jake's like, yeah, well, next time you tell me I'm not, you know, in a position to handle something, I'll listen. So they end up all kind of reconciled and... They've all made it through there. As Jake points out, there's been nothing really gained, but they managed to avert disaster. That's it. It's quite the book. It's so wild. I love that the stakes are so high for like really normal reasons. Yeah. Right. Because the thing is, if the Animorphs were like consistently at this level of realism, the stakes would always be this high with such (laughs) minute details where it's like. Jake is like, oh, this is a really critical situation, but I do not have time to morph safely. Most of my friends aren't here. And so he's like, okay, I'm just going to go onto the roof. And Tobias is like, okay, well, yeah, there are like two people who might be able to see you, but they probably won't, (laughs) right? And Jake's like, okay, I'll take the risk. He almost falls off the roof and dies. And then Tom happens to be looking not out the window so Jake Mm -hmm. can fall to the ground safely. But like... This is exactly how all of, like, the best episodes of Breaking Bad work, where it's like Walter White gets into a situation, and it's, like, all about the nitty-gritty logistics of Mm -hmm. how you can just be a little bit smarter to survive to, like, the next minute Uh and eventually live to fight another day. It was just really tense and exciting in a realistic, grounded way, instead of, like, a, and there's an even bigger spaceship in the sky kind of way. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's what I liked about it, too. Was the logistical sort of, okay, so you need to get from here to here. How are you going to do that? It was really Yeah, even when he's like, he's like a roach. Yeah. And it, it, a jar of jam falls. Jam dropped on him. And then he gets jam on him. And then he's in the cuff. And he's like, what if I eat the jam off of my leg? Oh, no. Now my dad felt me on in his pants. And so where am I going to go? Like, all of yep. this, like, little detailed stuff is really good. It feels like this stuff happens much more often when they're not facing the Yerks, which I think is a narrative choice. You know, it's kind of like how the <laughs> beginning of the Helmicron mm-hmm. book went, where they're like, this will be easy. Whenever they say this will be easy, it's when it goes really badly. Yeah. And I think there's it's justified in some ways because... Or even when the first David stuff, when Axe oh, and Marco yeah. trying to get the back. Yup. Because like, either they don't take things as seriously, or in this case, it's really clear why Jake's judgment would be compromised. But it also, I think, is a little bit of a narrative cheat that this stuff doesn't tend to happen. Their logistics lock is just way better when they're facing the Yerks. Right. I can see why they have to do that. But it is fun to see this kind of... Like Rachel Lampshades it at one point. She's like, this is so dumb. The whole war effort is at risk because you have to go to a family funeral. Like that's what we're dealing with. And yet it is actually very difficult. Yeah. Now that you're, you're saying it that way, I also like how Tom is in the same position as Jake, where this really unreasonable yeah. thing is happening, mm-hmm. right? Where it's like, like... This isn't a big deal. Why is this a big deal? But it is a big deal. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it's it's actually really interesting. And the book does a lot with a parallel between Jake and Tom throughout. Yeah. So that's a really interesting Jake and Tom's way here. to frame it. There's one thing 
later on in the book where Jake thinks about him and Tom's yerk as like these bitterly opposed forces and Jake's dad and Tom as the innocent sort of parties in the middle, putting himself sort of in the same camp as as the yerk. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, they're the ones who know they're fighting a war. I guess Tom knows about it, but he isn't able to be actively involved. Right. I felt like the book did a really good job of setting up the forces that were hemming Tom into this choice. Do you think maybe there were some choices he could have made earlier if he'd thought of them? Like injuring himself. One of my notes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Tom's here, not the best problem solver. There were definitely easier ways than trying to murder your host body's father. Are there? I mean, he could have broken his own leg. (laughs) I also think that it would have been, it should have been much easier for the Yerks to fake a death. Mm. Once Tom authorized that as the solution, like, oh, just kill him. Like, the Yerks are presumably covering up people who get killed by the Animorphs and, like, all sorts of stuff all the time. So, like, how hard is it to say, like, oh... You know, so sorry, but there was a a car accident. You don't even want to see the body. Mm -hmm. You know, like, Mm -hmm. let me just tell you. And clearly, like, the Animorphs were blocking some attempts to do that sort of thing. But you'd think they could have... Right. And then I guess then they kidnapped Chapman, so the Yurks weren't focusing their energies on it anymore. Right, right, right. But I think also they could have brought a Yurk in a baggie. Yeah, for example. Also, like, yeah, how are they going to cover up a drive-by shooting in a wealthy (laughs) suburb in the middle of the day? The Yurks are clearly not good planners, so I'm willing to accept that. But I liked the forces that were hemming Tom in, this sort of, like, this is such a mundane thing, I deal with so much more important things all the time, and yet if I'm going to keep infesting this teenage host body, I do have to be part of this family. I can't just opt out of these problems, even though I'm, like, a galaxy-conquering alien Uh and feel like they shouldn't apply to me. So, Uh like, he could just get out of Tom and kill the host body, but... I also love, in one of their early arguments about it, Mm -hmm. when, like, Jake and Tom are kind of, like, playing it being brothers. How, how much older is Tom supposed to be than Jake? A, couple, years? a couple of years? Yeah, right? He's like 16, 17, maybe. Something like, like that, yeah. Yeah, so Tom has some line where Jake's like, what's so important about like the sharing and all this stuff, like trying to like antagonize him, and Tom's just like, more than you'll ever know, little brother. <laughs> right? like it, which is like so perfect for both yep, like an yep. alien. Works on both levels. Right, an alien who like has to pretend to be a stupid teenager and also a really angsty teenager. Yeah. <laughs> Who's like, I'm like two or three years older than you and my problems are just like oceans deeper than yours. Yeah, I, it's way it's more really, important. really good. So I also, my other question about that was like, now that Tom is in the woods... And mm-hmm. the Yerks have not been able to kill the father. Tom's Yerk has failed at its mission mm-hmm. to stay behind mm-hmm. and is now in the woods. Why then is the next step still continue to kill the father? Yeah. There are other adults. Because killing the father wouldn't actually result in him getting back to civilization faster. Mm-hmm. He might just at that point have been real mad. But it's like but- a really cold... <laughs> it's not like a killing in anger. It's a like... And then I then they, I lured him out to the dock and we had a man-to-man talk. And then I, then he reaches for the dagger. And it's like, why? But don't you think that would have been... I mean, I think no, there no, were better solutions. But yeah. don't you think that that would have been really satisfying to someone who's like, I am a galaxy-conquering alien. And I had to go on this family trip because of you, petty little man. You wouldn't let me stay home. No, because I'm going to kill you. If the Yerks were, I mean, I think the Yerks are very dumb and very petty. Yeah. But I also think that if they had that kind of response, then teenage controllers would be killing their parents (laughs) every time they got grounded. Maybe they are. No, I mean, I I just, I, I think it's one of those. There were a few things in here where I think it's just incredibly clear that this is a middle grade sci fi book. Uh It is not 
an actual invasion that makes any goddamn sense. <laughs> because it's stuff like that. That doesn't okay. make any sense. But also, you can't be like, if Yerks were doing, if this is the kind of thing Yerks do, like, maybe it's just that Tom's Yerk does this. Like, I mean, you don't know. It's true, he's like all Yerks. Yeah. I also, I mean, you could bring up the, like, are you influenced by your host kind of thing, mm. where it's, like, a teenager-y plan. <laughs> That's yeah. true. But, I mean, so is so are, so is the Animorphs yeah. plan, right? I mean, similarly... What Tom should have just done is, like, arrange with another controller to get picked up, walk out to the road when no one's looking, and then Run disappear yeah. in the woods for a few days, get lost in the woods, survive ordeal-eating mushrooms like Cassie did in 19. Yeah, there yeah. are lots of other options that they have. Like, there's a medevac helicopter. You yeah. know some of those are controllers. <laughs> I do like the take that it's just Tom Zierk's bloody-mindedness. And he's also probably especially mad because he's like, he had this serious problem, and then the Yerks are like, nope, Chapman's kidnapped, we all have to focus on this, including you, Tom. And then they're like, yeah, we don't care about you as much, and he might have just have had some issues to deal with. Yeah, there's a really good line where Jake says something about... Yeah, like if my friends if, abandoned me to the yeah. Yerks to like take care of someone more important... Exactly. I wouldn't like that much. It's a really good point. I guess the question that I had was more, is this still the important Yerk in Tom? No. No, no. Okay. It's a less so important So this is just yerk. any Yerk. Yeah, we have no idea how important he is. I'm not entirely sure why the Yerks are expending this much energy to help him in the first place. And second of all, yeah. does this mean that since the invasion began two years ago, no controller has gone on a vacation of longer than three that. days? What are the ramifications globally for the tourism industry? <laughs> <laughs> okay, there aren't that many controllers. Yeah, but like, it, I mean, then then suddenly the number of like Caribbean vacations drops precipitously from these like developed countries. I mean, the, this is like this is actually a serious economic impact. Well, if they it can't could go also it could days. be the other way around, which is it it seriously limits the kind of people that can be infested, which mm. could explain why. The logistics of getting your pool set up means that they can only infest certain kinds of people, and it means that they can't quite spread across the globe. That's, like, why everything happens We do have this California. very localized invasion, which is why I don't think that the tourism industry has probably noticed much, because it's, like, just this area of presumably Southern California. I'm definitely willing to see that the Yorks are really bad at logistics yeah. in a middle and grady way. I also, and that's all there is to it. I'm being a little disingenuous. I do think that the reason that Tom or Tom's Yerk needed to kill Jake's father was just so that the stakes would remain there for Jake. Like I think that it was just like a narrative choice that maybe wasn't completely grounded in the logistics of the narrative. But I, yeah, I do like imagining yeah, I mean, like, maybe the Yerk had psychological like, reasons. You know, Jake's dad had handcuffed himself to Tom to prove a point. Then they would he would have had to kill him, right? That would have been better. That would right? have been ridiculous. <laughs> sure. There's a parenting move for you. <laughs> better yeah. parenting through bondage. Absolutely. No, it's it's a good point. I mean, and I, you know, I'm always hard on them for being dumb. But I, <laughs> the other thing is that I think part of the reason that I was that confused is that the Animorphs had this idea of the Yerks as being very good at this stuff, mm. right? They they think that the Yerks are going to suddenly be able to understand coincidences in a way that they uh, have previously yes. not. <laughs> well, this is the book after Visser One finally figured it out. Right. Yes. And I know Mr. One is like an exceptionally cool and smart Yerk, 
But there must know. be other smart Yerks. They can't all be like this. Yeah, Visitor Three's twin, a pretty smart Yerk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Too bad he he you know his house was burned down and he was murdered <laughs> by Rachel and Jake. Yeah, I mean, I guess like part of their thing was uh, <laughs> so there are no smart Yerks left. Is what you're saying? <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> well, they pushed one off a cliff, and <laughs> yeah, Marco at one point says uh, the Yerks aren't idiots. They go after your dad, and suddenly the Animorphs attack a, a minor meeting. They can add two plus two. Uh, they can't. Here's how I know that. <laughs> They never have before. And also, has every time that the Animorphs have attacked the Yerk pool or a sharing meeting or whatever been like a major Yerk meeting? Because sometimes they're just in a McDonald's. It means that if that were true, then maybe the Yerks behind the scenes are finding every child related to an adult (laughs) who had been picked up to become a controller the day before the Animorphs attacked a meeting. Right? Like, that, that doesn't make any sense. Right. But it's also something where, like, if they succeed here, the Yerks will make further attempts, and they're going to have to stop those further attempts. And so if they stop, like, if there's clear Andalite bandit involvement in, like, stopping four separate attempts to infest Jake's dad, they're going to notice that. Also, Visitor 3 will show up at the third one, right? Like, <laughs> as soon as this is a pattern, like, even if they don't put it together, Visitor 3 will be there, right? Absolutely, yeah. he likes to micromanage. That's a good point. So, great. You had thoughts on the Animorphs also being bad at planning? I mean, I think we'll get more into Jake and his sense of responsibility and the decisions that he makes or doesn't make. But I also think that they make some decisions in this book that I also question. For example, uh, I was thinking specifically of bringing up the bit at the end. And this is a Jake decision. I shouldn't say, like, not an Animorphs decision. But he is seeing Tom. This is the same the same scene, right? So Tom and his dad are out at the end of the pier. Tom's got the dagger, and he's going to pull it out. And Jake says, the only way I can stop this is by taking the time to morph into a tiger and then attacking Tom in Tiger Morph. Mm-hmm. Do you know what else you could do? You're an annoying younger brother. Yeah. Run down there and push him off the dock. <laughs> it's true. It seemed to me like Jake had sort of gotten into his mind. Like, if Tom tries something, I'm going to be up here alone with him. It's going to be him versus me. I'm just going to have to kill him. And yes, he very much has. And mm-hmm. take a breath, buddy. Yeah. like it's He's been, been under a lot of strain and hasn't been sleeping. I also think he's just... <laughs> There's progressively more bloodlust in Jake as mm. this goes on, right? Because he he's really angry at the Yurk and Tom's head yeah. from the beginning, and he's sort of like constantly is he's constantly living under the stress. I forget which book it was that had that like normal family dinner scene where he was like, sixteen, yeah, yeah. So he's like, be like, one day I'm gonna I'm gonna kill you, and he has that for same what you've kind done of to like, my family, yeah. right? He has that same he's he's been carrying that for half the series at this point. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, then, probably the whole one, really. Maybe he didn't have quite the same revenge and idea. At the after beginning. he, in that, like, when his, he's still pumping with adrenaline after having warded off the drive-by shooting, mm-hmm. he, like, sees Tom, like, looking angrily out the window, and he's, like, almost overcome by his rage. Mm-hmm. Like, I just need to, I just need to end this. So, like, it's definitely not rational, but the way that the book is, like, coming back to this theme of you just can't separate your emotions from this kind of conflict. Yeah, right? I do think also part of it is that they have gotten themselves very understandably, because of the battles they've been fighting, mm-hmm. the Animorphs have gotten to a point where they have a hammer and everything yeah. looks like a nail and the hammer yeah. is morphing and they're not thinking about other strategies that they can use yeah. that might also help. Which, to be fair, he does use earlier in the book. Like, he runs out to help his dad water the lawn. But I like that there is, a like, a logistical out for him there where he could just have gone up in human form and been like, hey, what are you guys doing out at the dock right now? Yeah. And I I liked the part, I mean, liked is 
this is a strong word. And I was very intrigued by the part where he lists out here, like the three reasons that I want to kill Tom right now. Cause not cause it'll save my dad. He wants to free Tom from being enslaved. He wants revenge on the Yerk. And he's like, also huge logistical advantage, not having Tom watching over me. Like mm-hmm. those are the three things that go into his. And like one of those is really admirable. One of those is really, two of those are like in different ways, really disturbing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One other thing on this point is just that it's the climax of the book. So like we know it has to come to a head here, but going up without morphing just extends the problem another couple yeah. of hours, right? Yeah. So Tom's here is going to get progressively more extreme. So like the only out he That's can true. see is killing Tom. He hasn't thought of the breaking the leg thing or like, and so like he could be like stall for time, stall for time, stall for time. But for whatever reason, maybe I mean, he's already observed he's that to, like, I have to end this. Constantly being on the defense wears him down without actually hurting the enemy. Mm-hmm. So, and so he might not trust his ability to be there next time. He's there this time. He has to do it this time. You were talking about how they see like morphing as the tool they always go to. Is this the first book where the protagonist has not acquired any new morphs? No. I thought it was really interesting that the four morphs are like four classic animorphs yeah. morphs, and I feel like he uses them in all kind of very appropriate ways. Like he goes Rhino when their like solution is just to mess things up, mm-hmm. and then at the end. Like, he doesn't use the tiger at all until the very end, and he's like, I'm going to do this as, like, the leader of the Animorphs. It's, like, the most, I don't know, even though it's, like, a very selfish action, or he's on a very selfish path. But it's a nod to how his role as as leader has changed him. Mm -hmm. Right. I think there was a previous book where we noticed that they didn't acquire any morph. I don't remember what it is off the top of my head right now. A project for our our listeners. Yeah. (laughs) Well, like, in 21, did he get a new morph? Uh, no, probably not. Probably not. Yeah, Marco gets the snake in 20, and they all get rats in 22, but not... They don't all get rats in 22. Cassie and Rachel just already had it, had them. So actually, I think 21 and 22, they might not get any morphs. But yeah, so it's not the... Yeah, that's true. It's not the first book, but that is probably significant. Do we want to talk about uh, Jake as a leader? Oh, yeah, let's do it. I mean, that was a large part of the, the meat of this book. I mean, the really interesting thing about this is right at the, I, we've seen a couple of instances of him being a really good leader, like especially 26 was like mm. peak Jake as leader of the Animorphs. Mm-hmm. And here, because the stakes are so personal, it's like, so really good at leading other people, really bad at giving up control, delegating decisions to other people, letting his friends and teammates support him, yeah. and like not being really, really selfish. <laughs> so it's like a fascinating it's, it's like and I'm so rooting for Jake but I'm so frustrated by how aware of his bad decisions he is and how little ability he has to reach out ask for help I do feel something like that's always kind of been a thing for him like that was definitely a thing in in 16 where he wouldn't show any weakness or in in 25 when actually maybe the Siberian tiger was fine in the Arctic but he also like Marco makes a point of like Jake was probably just as uncomfortable as the rest of us but he wouldn't complain until we were all fine and he takes this sort of burden on himself as a leader and even when he recognizes he's not in a position to uphold it anymore because he has such a personal stake in this he's He's not able to put himself back as a member of the group following someone else. Right. That doesn't seem to be a possibility for him. Right. I did find it really interesting. There's so much stuff about Jake and Marco, their relationship and their different mm. styles in this. We have been talking a lot recently about how Marco could not take over from Jake as the leader of the Animorphs. And I still think that's sort of true in a long-term way. But it seems like he does here step into that role 
like maybe a more classic second in command role actually Mm -hmm. of like, dude, I know you're the leader, but like you are messing up right now. I, we need you to take a step back. He's sort of the one to call Jake on that. And he's the one to come up with the alternate plan. And we don't really know if he was leading that effort at the end, but it seems like he probably was. A little bit. I want to make a case for Tobias too. We'll (laughs) we'll talk about it more. But I, I guess what I'm saying is like, Marco can't do it alone, but he does, like, everybody is against Jake, right? Yes, it's not just, yes. like, Marco's He sort of has control. their buy-in right, to, like, do right, this right, right. operation behind Jake's back, and so that's probably why And there's also a lot of really interesting stuff in that they don't connect this as much as they should because of the format, right? But it's mm-hmm. it's a direct parallel to the events of book 30 yeah where marco finds himself in the situation where he has to be and they the do reference to that kill a his lot. mom they do reference but like not even as much as they should because the, the hypocrisy is that jake is like i knew i had to prevent you from killing your mom but i have to be the one to kill my brother <laughs> right which it doesn't make any sense and the lesson he learns at the end is like okay i was totally completely wrong yeah there are a lot of great callbacks to 30 like jake's like objecting something he's like but and marco's like no buts you know me you know i've worked it out and that felt like the kind of credibility he wanted to earn in 30. Mm. And it feels like mm-hmm. now he has. And mm-hmm. at one point, Jake Ar- references well, it directly. He's like, this is payback for the thing with your mom, right? That's why you were bringing this up with me. And Mar- But Marco is like, he, Marco erases his own doubt from the last book. Mm-hmm. He's like, <laughs> I made the tough choice and you can't do it, right? Like, he, I mean, he did. Is, he was going to do it. Well, he was going to do it and then he wasn't, <laughs> right? But That's true, but then he was again. It's the right argument mm-hmm. to make to Jake in this book. I thought it was so cool how we got to see, like, just Marco and Jake in that opening mm-hmm. bit, where, like, it really is just kind of a test of wills between them. And Marco, one-on-one like this, is, like, so understanding and kind, and yet, like, like really firm that Jake is in the wrong. Like, yeah. Because, like, uh, when they're rushing off to the meeting, Marco's helping figure out, well, where could it be? They call the chi, and then... Jake flies ahead because his bird is faster mm-hmm. and like, but Marco's being like really sweet to him. I forget exactly Marco, what he says. Marco but. says, okay, he says, oh, but Jake, what? I snapped. I expected him to say, don't do anything stupid. You're not alone, man, Marco said, which I love. I love that, that Marco was able to provide that emotional support in that moment. Yeah. But just before that, uh, it struck me that it's an exact replay of the moment with Marco and David where Jake... <gasps> mm-hmm has to call his dad on the phone and yes. then not give the game away. Because the way what they're doing here yep, is get his dad yeah. to pick up the phone, but he can't say anything because Eric's just going to trace the background noise of the call. And so Marco sees Jake about to say something the way that he saw David about to say something and has to like replay this whole thing. And it's like, yeah. I can just imagine how awful it must be for Marco to be like, Ugh. Jake has completely lost it. Like he's mm-hmm. as... He's as in hopeless this situation. as David. Yeah. His parents are threatened. His parents might become controllers and he's totally going off the rails. Right. Oh, I hadn't thought of that parallel. It's really good. I, I want to talk a little more too about what happens before that. So he, Jake is going over to Marco's house. Uh, he's like, I need to talk to Cassie, but I know she's busy tonight. I'm going to talk to Marco instead. And he meets Marco, like, coming towards his house. And Marco's like, hey, I was just coming to your house. I need your English notes. I was like, this is right after book 30. There's no way Marco was coming over for English notes. He needed to hang out with Jake because he's feeling sad and alone. And uh, he, he says, yo. And Jake's like, since when do you start saying yo? And Marco says, I was going to yell, hey, handsome. But I thought you might prefer yo. I love it so much because Marco's not really, like, disclaiming it. He's just saying, like, I don't know if you're into that, Jake. <laughs> 
yes, he is absolutely putting his feelings directly out there and assuming they won't be taken seriously, which they're not. Mm-hmm. Jake is completely oblivious, and I have never been more convinced that Marco has a crush on Jake. That's very cute. The other throwback they do a lot in this, speaking of that that uh, section, is to the to World War Two. Yeah. So Jake's. Jake says, oh, you know, my, my great-grandfather died today. And Marco says, oh, yeah, he, he was old, though, right? I mean, he was in World War Three, World War Two, Marco. Two. Marco replies, no, duh. We spent a really <laughs> unpleasant afternoon in the middle of World War Two. you may recall. But he like, doesn't because he wasn't there. I was... It was very interesting very to have writer-y. this. <laughs> well, no, but to have this after Megamorphs 3 in which Jake wasn't there for most of this. And Marco oh. probably has a lot of thoughts now about World War II. And he was kind of playing it off with a joke. I don't know how conscious he was of the dynamic that, that like, makes, Jake wasn't there. That makes Jake's, like, the fact that Jake goes totally off the rails, but the rest of the group is, like, really with it, so much more interesting. Yeah. Because they, they, they had to deal with no Jake. And like <gasps> that's so true. They he, had practice he didn't really with this. learn. He and he didn't really learn the like lessons that they learned about like yeah. all of this heavy stuff. And he hmm. does do some of his own grappling with the past wars of like Earth's history yeah, in this book. That's so hmm. interesting. It doesn't quite cover the same ground as Megamorph's three, right. but he gets to do some of that that he missed. Good point. I really want to talk about the vote. Yeah, let's talk about the vote scene. I found this a this a really interesting kind of piece. This is after the mini mall after they've followed they've distracted the dad from a meeting of the sharing and he's back at home and the the animorphs are all meeting up to talk about what to do next and they have this argument about it and jake is is really losing it in a lot of ways so marco calls for a vote which i think is such a fascinating decision and it's essentially a vote of no confidence right Mm -hmm. (laughs) and because he had frozen under pressure jake had frozen under under pressure tobias and x asked for orders and he hadn't been able to make the call so marco says okay let's let's take a vote and that from the lieutenant is a really interesting thing Mm -hmm. to do but then also the way that the vote breaks down is really interesting because basically what they say is okay it's marco versus jake Uh uh-huh Rachel and Axe aren't there. They're they're keeping tabs on yeah, the stuff. Tobias says, okay, Axe is going to refuse to vote. So we've got one holdout, which means mm-hmm. there's five of us. So there will be a tiebreaker. You can't tie. And Jake says, Rachel will back me. And Mark's like, yes, she will. Which, <laughs> how do you... There's a lot of mind reading in this book where they're like, yeah. this is what this person is thinking. I'm like, you do not know that. And that is a very unhealthy communication style you should reconsider. Rachel often surprises people with how she votes. So yeah. that is yeah. actually an interesting point. So we've got Jake now and Rachel versus Marco. So Marco says, okay, it's up to Cassie and Tobias. And Cassie just doesn't say anything. She looks troubled. She's yeah. worried about it. And Tobias calls it. He's like, he'd been there twice when Jake had kind of messed up. And he goes through this whole like you guys are missing some important points. Here's the big picture. Here's and why we do need to protect Jake's dad. Right. So it's not whether we should, it's how we do it. So he, he says, let's get off the defensive and do something. So he kind of comes up with this plan, the big mm-hmm. distraction plan. And then Jake's the one who's like, okay, here's how we're going to do it. Comes, oh. Jake comes up with, a, with yeah. the, like what yeah. they're going to do, but Tobias comes up with a big picture. Yeah. So I think Tobias saves the day for the group here, right? Yeah. Because imagine if, so like Marco's like, I have to give Jake an ultimatum. I'm trying to take control of the group. Mm-hmm. If, if it had been Marco, Cassie, and Tobias overthrow Jake, that would have gotten <laughs> a lot uglier before mm-hmm. it got better, right? Because be Jake true. is going to feel betrayed by Cassie. Cassie was clearly yeah. going to vote against him, yeah. right? And so Tobias is here basically playing peacemaker um, yeah. and recognizing that 
Jake needs this. It's yeah. interesting that Cassie doesn't play Peacemaker. She says very little in this scene. The book, really? Yeah, very little in the book. Because I think it's more focused on Jake and Marco. But yeah, she's just very... Mm-hmm. Like, Tobias is the one who plays that role. We've talked about how Cassie is in some ways the heart of the group. She's more the conscience of the group, but she doesn't really play Peacemaker. Well, and then at the end of this, just to highlight the way that this would have broken the group apart, mm-hmm. Jake is a real ass at the end of this scene because <laughs> oh. Marco oh, says... Yeah. Nothing personal. I was just looking for the, looking out for the group, and he like holds out his hand to shake, to shake, and Jake doesn't take it. Refuses yeah. to take it, and after a while, he pulls his hand back. You're like, Jake, buddy, it's you won. Knock it off. It's so interesting that this book happens when it does. I think this book couldn't have happened the way it did any sooner. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I think yeah. it needed... Because yeah. I'm thinking, like, in 29, when Jake gets sick, and Marco and Rachel are like, I'm leader. No, I'm leader. Why are you the leader? Yeah. And then Megamorphs 3, where... Jake is taken out Jake of is taken out of commission, and they have to figure out how to deal without him. Then 30, where Marco has to sort of take control mm-hmm. and figure out how to do And Jake, that. again, is taken out of commission. And so that really equips them for this discussion. Yeah, that's so and interesting. Jake is a little, little bit behind. Of, of Jake books. Yeah. That's so interesting. It's like the rest of the group has gotten to grow in these ways. Like, they still think of Jake as their leader, and they still rely on him in a lot of ways, but they've sort of developed new skills for dealing without him, mm-hmm. and Jake hasn't quite caught on to that. And they've all had to confront their demons a lot mm-hmm. more directly yeah. more recently than Jake. Yeah. Right? Maybe <laughs> except for Tobias, because he's always kind of dealing with the same thing. <laughs> but this book might be Jake catching up in terms of like, oh, okay, maybe I can trust the rest of the group to handle things that I can't handle. Because he's so aware that he can't handle this, he just also doesn't trust anyone else to take it off his hands. Right. Yeah, I did wonder whether one thing that might actually help Jake with his constant crises of responsibility um, <laughs> is actually to have more missions uh, that he can delegate mm, because he's done that a couple times right he did it with Cassie Marcos had to make the call and like be in charge and like plan things mm-hmm. a couple of times I think even Rachel at one point gets a similar like you make the call I'll kind of go along with it so I actually think he's, yeah. he's done this before and I think he's not good at it when it's his family on the line. Absolutely. Like we've seen before that he wants to be the one to make the decision when Tom's life is in question. Mm-hmm. But he just doesn't trust anyone else with that. And I think, yeah, he normally has pretty good emotional intelligence for this stuff, but it totally breaks down when it's like when he has stakes in the game. It's so His decision-making process there is so interesting. One thing he says about it is he's like, you know, the group wanted to do surveillance. I told them no. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, I know that they could have helped, but, like, I didn't think anyone else would do as good of a job. Yep. Yep. And, like, I, I understand. I identify with that. But I don't think that's it. I think it's more that he he can't handle the idea that Rachel and Marco would kill Tom when he's not there. And yeah. then he would have to, like, deal with that. Something about that is what he's afraid of. He's afraid mm-hmm. of, like, having them make the choice for him. I think he also doesn't want to be seen in this sort of emotional turmoil that he's having. He says when he lies to them and, like, they leave for the lake earlier than he said... Says, I was done using my friends on this mission. I was tired of Marco's doubts and Axe's honor and even Cassie's weary sympathy. And it's all like he doesn't want those emotions confronting him when he's doing stuff that he's not confident in. But that is, I'm, I'm not over Jake in that moment because he is so awful. For him to be, be that selfish mm-hmm. and the thing, mm-hmm. so 
immediately after that. So we talked a little bit about how Cassie like is kind of a non-presence in this book, mm-hmm. but it's so interesting to me that he thinks of he thinks of her in the beginning. Yeah. When he's like, well, Marco's good at logistics, but Cassie's also good at the logistical stuff in a different and way. Cassie like sees beneath the surface. Yeah. I think, is is the yeah. uh, planning OT three there? Oh man, mm-hmm. uh, they would be so good at planning. <laughs> Amazing. But you know, he because of circumstances, he he can't talk to her. And then in this moment, he's thinking. He's choosing to hold Cassie at arm's length. And he mm-hmm. thinks, like, I'm going to need to talk to her. But afterwards. Yeah. He's like, so I feel like he's he's almost, like, treating her. He's outsourcing his conscience to her and treating her as, like, a confessor. Right? He's like, mm-hmm. after he's done all this ugly stuff, he can go to her and be like, but I did what I had to, Cassie. And she'll be like, oh, it's Jake, okay, Jake. It's okay. <laughs> right? And it's like, I, yeah. it's so cowardly. But the other thing about that moment, we haven't even talked about this. The plan that Jake comes up with to cause a distraction is so screwed up and horrible. It's terrible. And so Jake is like, I don't want to deal with Axe's honor after he has made Axe torture Chapman for no good reason. It's so horrible. And Axe loses his temper. Axe never does that. He like, he basically- Yeah, that wasn't a ghostwriterly Axe never does that. That was like a legit- Axe would do that under these yeah. circumstances. Yeah, and instead of Jake being like, wow, I sure maybe have like lost it a little bit, he's like, I can't deal with Axe's honor right now. Okay, but he it's also so thinks immature. he's lost it a little bit because after the thing where they kidnap Chapman, he's like, look at the, look, I'm making, like, Melissa Chapman is crying for her parents. I'm making Axe be this, like, torturer. Marco's not going to need to call for another vote. Also, like, if, I hadn't, if, if he hadn't been this. so badly injured, he would have just killed Chapman. That right? is true. Yeah. yeah, that is true. You guys, what the- what, what, what the, <laughs> I have, do you need us to bleep you out so that you can say something? Just I say think. it, just get it out, get it out. What the mother was up with this plan? There are many things about this plan that I do not understand. Uh-huh. And again, maybe I'm just missing some fundamental things about how anything works. But what they do is they break into Chapman's home uh-huh. to kidnap him. Yeah. Then they bring him to some abandoned house and they tie him up. Okay, fine. Great. You needed to cause a distraction. You tie up Chapman. I have no problem with that. Mm-hmm. What exactly? And so Axe, like, yells at him. Fine. But why? I don't think that Axe is actually torturing him. I think he's yelling at him and, like, kind of being a little dramatic. What is he doing? That's Chopping his fingers true. off with his tail blade? He's no, not actually right. torturing him. He's not physically torturing so him, So everyone calm down a little bit. He's not torturing okay. him. He's <laughs> yelling at him. And two... Why do you need to do that? Lock him up and leave him there. I think that the reason they did that was so that it seemed like they had another reason for kidnapping Chapman. So it's them giving a lot of credit to the Yerks for being able to put patterns together, which maybe is unrealistic on their part. But like, if we kidnap him for no reason, and Chapman's like, I don't know why they did. They just stuck me in a thing for a night. And they're like, maybe they needed to cause a distraction so that we didn't, you know, kill sure, Jake's dad. But like, it's a stretch. It's a stretch. And also, I just feel like there's a lot of, you know, Axe gets very upset about this, which I understand. This is very uncomfortable for him, right? He's he's yelling at Chapman and trying to get him to tell him the Yerks are that are in control, whatever. But so he, Jake says, I was tempted to continue holding Chapman and starve this Yerk to death. Well, that's a great idea. <laughs> Should you do that? Should they? I mean, do they lose anything? by? Well, I guess the, you have one more free person who, even though they're not on your side, like, that seems good. Well, yeah, but then you can't just, I mean, Chapman will just be reinfested or the Yerks will kill him. I mean, I'm not, I just feel like, again, there's like a <laughs> yeah. kind of, there's there's a bias in these books against uninvesting people mm-hmm. that I find a little odd. Well, it's, I think it's just logistically really tricky because the Yerks obviously know 
that Chapman is a controller. And if Chapman suddenly isn't a controller, they're like, oh no, let's make you a controller again, in which case all you did was kill a Yerk. Right. There but, are a lot of Yerks. The thing is, it's or not that there's a lot of Yerks. Chapman. It's that this is an important Yerk. Yeah, that's the that's reason true. kidnapping Chapman means anything, is because his Yerk is important. Yeah, yeah. So it's not like you have killed Tom's Yerk, which let's come back to that, because... We have no yeah. idea how important Tom's Yerk is. He might be, you know, uh, middlingly Sure, important. but like, we know Chapman's Yerk is, is important enough for them mm-hmm. to drop mm-hmm. everything to try and protect him. So the idea of, yeah, starve that Yerk seems like a great plan to me. Even yeah. if he gets reinfested, he's probably not going to be reinfested at the same level because he's not like overly useful. Yeah, Chapman. It's just the year that yeah. is important, right? They seem to be not super into assassination outside of battle, which is part of the series bias against killing in cold blood, which. It was an understandable bias. I just think they should act more like assassins in certain ways, and I also think they should focus more on the Yerks and like uninvested people. So that's right. one so thing. They, they so end up. I yeah, you're right. Though that they end up like yeah. killing a lot of like unimportant Yerks and their hosts right. when they could be focusing. So more. here, yeah. starve the Yerk to death. The great do that. But then Axe has this whole thing about like. So I'm sad because Melissa has been crying for her father. Fair. That sounds terrible. I've heard the terror of this controller. You've heard the terror of the Yerk. Well, that's what he means. I mean the. The word controller is ambiguous. And he says... Chapman also presumably thinks he's going to die. Yeah. Uh, Sure. I will gladly fight this controller and even in fair battle kill him, but I'm not a torturer. Couple things. One, the whole situation sucks. It does. I'm not saying it doesn't. Not actually torturing him. And do Andalites not keep prisoners of war? Is their whole plan to slaughter them? probably doesn't know about it. Because he's an arrest. I mean, okay, maybe. But I just... It was like a whole... I think kidnapping someone and threatening to kill them... Or let them starve to death is worse than, worse like than you're, you're painting like it. Like you're brushing it off a little bit. Yeah. I agree, maybe torture. It's not like enhanced interrogation techniques domain, but like right. He's not even actually trying to get information out of him, so he's probably not doing anything. Yeah, I mean, physically. I, I agree that like Axe yelling at you. I don't want to do that. Right, that sucks. I'm not saying it's like right. I'm just saying it's another place where they're being a little precious about things yeah. for reasons that I don't entirely understand. Like there's a whole bit at the end that. And this is just, I think I'm, I think I'm just fundamentally misunderstanding what the book was trying to say. And I was trying to read it this afternoon. So like, maybe I just missed this. But the implications seem to be not necessarily that Jake would kill Tom, but that Tom would die if his Yerk died. What? Why? There were a few places where it was like, I'm I'm imagining life without Tom because we wouldn't be home before the three day limit was up. So that's, that's. Oh, I think it's because he thinks he's going to have to kill him. I mean, maybe, but it it didn't say it doesn't say it wouldn't matter though because if he tried to kill my fa- to kill the father, I would have to kill him. It's we still wouldn't be home before the three day limit. I tried to imagine life without Tom. Like the causality seems to be, oh, and I, well, was I like, think there was an implication that? that like I mean, if Tom's yerk dies, the yerk controllers have to kill him, right, or reinfest him. I mean, you're putting a lot of effort into protecting Tom now, like monitoring Tom, maybe monitoring him, to- monitor him forever. No, or maybe put him into, I don't know, like, I'm just saying, I I don't really understand the, like, there has to be another way. There has to be something that they can do if a controller becomes uninfested. Like, well, it just or, oh, you mean the animorphs? The animorphs, like there, or maybe it's like, not an easy. It's not an easy problem, though. It's like not. you'd have to like hide them in Axe's scoop or something. No, or yeah, or or you find them, one send of them the, to Uzbekistan, or get a Yerk resistance fighter to figure something out. 
Maybe. Right? Yeah. Like, I mean... Talk to Tidwell. Yeah. Like, send them back to the year pool and have them pretend to be invested. I mean, there. Mm-hmm. I just think there are, like, other things that are not being considered at the... Yeah. Because they're being super dramatic about this. I think that the Chi are able to get away with visiting the year pool and not actually being infested. I mean, they have the Yerks, like, cap in their head because they do holograms. Yeah. I don't think it's actually practical for... A human to pretend that a yerk is coming out of their ear. Yeah. I think they probably watch it pretty carefully. I mean, it probably it probably is. It just I again, it was just mostly that like I don't really understand what the plan is with Chapman, and I feel like oh my other question. Sorry, really fast. The other question I had was, uh, does it count as violence if you are monitoring someone that you did not kidnap or tie up? just happens to be kidnapped and tied up in the same room because then wait what put the chi there as like guardians. <laughs> He's tied up. Don't do anything. <laughs> no, I wouldn't I like say the way that counts as violence. I do like feel like there. Eric would be like really, really condescending about it, though. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like it's such a weird. Well, I mean, why plan. would you ask the chi to do it instead of having Axe do it? Like, why would you fob it off on the because chi? Because then, then Axe doesn't have to. I don't know. Get all uppity about torturing people. Yeah, but then Eric has to torture. I mean, Eric has to do the same thing. I feel like Axe wouldn't be comfortable being like, "I'm not morally okay with this." Would you do it? Like, that doesn't seem. Like something he would do, he would want to take. He did. He did seem like he wanted to take the burden of it onto himself a little bit, and then he, I don't know, freaks out about it. It clearly was not a good experience, intentionally causing someone else to be really terrified of him for like an entire night. Yeah. Also, the other thing, I think that the Andalite honor, in terms of like this, Axe needs to kill Viscer Three because Viscer Three killed Ophangor. I've never been that like into the drama of all that, but yeah. Axe kind of puts the Andalite honor a different way here. He frames it in terms of like, what will people think of me? Like, mm. assuming that we survive and win and this, like, story gets out, like, what will people think of me after the war? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a really interesting perspective that it gets introduced. And it's really interesting because it ties into, like, Jake thinking about his great-grandfather oh. who, like, comes home from War a Hero. But I thought it was more starting tomorrow when Chapman gets free, the Yerks are going to tell this story. And Axe is like, my name will be... So-. I was like, did you tell him your name? Probably not. But, like, this Andalite who held Chapman captive and then was so stupid as to leave him next to a bunch of broken glass, Axe is like, they're going to be telling this story and it's going to be humiliating for me. My name like, will I thought it was legend, synonymous with aptitude. Oh, yeah, I thought it I was like immediately the Yerks are going to be talking about this, but I think that is still okay, the no, no, no. I'm, I'm idea of like misremembering it. That's, acts, that's, the that's other it. like the enemy's perception of him matters to his honor. Well, then I don't care about X at all. <laughs> I'm with Gray now. I can switch sides. I don't know. It made some sense to me because there was a bit where. Jake's like, Axe was determined to play this role. And then he gets Chapman and he, like, says all these really terrible things about, like, how, you know, if you want to survive, you're going to tell me all these things. I'm going to torture you. I was like, at what point does it stop being a role and just, like, what you're doing? And it's true he probably didn't physically torture him because why would he? But no, it's still, like, psychological torture. Yeah. Maybe torture is too strong a word for it. But also, well, I mean, again, I, I guess my fundamental question is, Why? Why what? Why, why yell at him at all? Why not just because you and, so and your point is that like, so yeah, it seems it like seems this like is like a thing another we're trying reason. To do. Yeah, but I just don't buy that as a reason because you think the Yerks would never put it together. I think the, the Yerks won't put it together, and I think there are enough reasons that they might want to kidnap Chapman to get mm-hmm. him out of the way that it mm, yeah doesn't make sense to me that the leap would no, be that's true. That, some yeah. unimportant minor Yerk is being taken away for a weekend. It must be that <laughs> right? Like yeah, because you got to assume the Yerks have other stuff going on right now. They're not 
not going to be like, this all must have to do with Tom. Yeah. I mean, how important is, is Tom and his year? We don't really? know. We don't know, but it doesn't seem like maybe. They were willing to do a drive-by shooting in broad daylight over it, so it might have been kind of important. I don't know. I, I really like, though, the idea that the Yerks are constantly scrambling between, like, crazy plan, crazy plan, mm-hmm. and that, like, the reason that they are incompetent from, like, a Watsonian perspective is they're horribly mismanaged and always <laughs> yeah. afraid that they're about to be killed. And so, like, it's just, like, <laughs> you show up to work, your Yerk work for the day, right? And you're like, okay... I guess I have a gun and you can be like my driver, Chapman. And they're like, oh, no, Chapman's been kidnapped, canceled all the plans. And you're like, oh, but what about the, you know, like... Random doctor that I was supposed to... Yeah, or like, you know, our whole, like, CD store, like, record player scheme that we haven't ever heard of. You know, like, no, 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 that that doesn't matter. You know? Yeah, it's true. And probably Visser 3 is always like, I don't like that old plan. Let's do a new one. And there are probably lots of controllers whose bosses are like, and I'm sending you on a business trip. And then suddenly they have to deal with that. And and a lot of controllers who are teenagers or who have spouses who aren't controllers who, like, are constantly needing to get out of stuff, they must just be putting out fires all over the place all the time. It's a rough life. But then when you put it that way, why aren't the animals exploiting that more? Like, everyone <laughs> should basically be like, let's just wa- follow around behind a controller until something crazy happens so that we can lean into it. <laughs> but what good would that do them? Because they aren't, like we were saying, not they aren't that interested in uninfesting specific that's people because then what would they do with the person? How is Melissa Chapman still uninfested? Well, Wait, that's why her dad became a controller. These are... They're, they are not two books from having had months, if not years, of life experience with Melissa Chapman fighting <laughs> in a horrible, horrible oh, alternate future. Oh. And they don't even, they don't give her the time of day. They just let her wander around crying and nobody thinks, poor Melissa, I remember, you know, like, her deepest secrets that she told me, crying about how hard it is that her dad's invested. Do you think they have a full memory of their, like, 13 or 14 years of life in the alternate reality? That seems, like, way too much. There There was a line where they were like, Melissa doesn't know that her parents are different, and I was like, she knows. Not read the... Because I read the (laughs) Anyway... I side note, I really liked when Axe showed up to the door to be like, hello, I am a classmate of Melissa's and need to talk to her about an assignment. And Chapman is like, sure. And he's and Axe is like, I am a classmate and also a close friend, and thus this is not a strange thing for me to do. And at first I was like, wait, Chapman isn't suspicious? And I was like, Chapman deals with teenage boys with crushes all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Also, Axum, he goes into his morph, but not all the way. So he's like 80% morphed. This is new, right? I do not remember Uh, until these last two books them being able to choose which parts of them morph and I don't think they can choose what parts of Cassie. I think they can just choose to stop at a certain point, however morphed they are. So he got lucky enough to not have like stock eyes until the very end. I get I mean I think that that's probably and the last Maybe he had to try it a couple times. Morphin, morph out, morph in, morph out. I know, it just seems weird. No, because I think Cassie's the only one who's it's a really little weird. control. Yeah, it's a little this weird. is the, the second book in a row where I've been like, do you stop a morph at a time when you wanted to stop a morph right. in a way that would convenient. be useful? Because <laughs> let's get that sooner. You can be really helpful. Yeah, I think it's just lucky if they happen to have the things show up in the right order. I didn't love the like Quasimodo descript- comparison. It's like his like features were all weird and he's like Quasimodo only without a hump. And I was like... This feels like you're just not in touch with any disability conversation ever. Mm-hmm. It was pretty not. bad. And then Marcus' response is, Well, Axe, I'll never think of you as just another pretty face. Yeah, I liked that too. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I think that Marco is still very hung up on Jake, but he also has been noticing X. Mm. So some other, like, Jake's decision-making stuff that I thought was really interesting is that Mm -hmm. he has, at the beginning, his instinct, I need to help, I need to help, and Marco keeps trying to, like, pull him back, right? Mm -hmm. And then in the parking garage, he does have that moment of freezing where he won't give orders, but then he thinks to himself, well, I can save my dad. And then everyone will lose, including my dad. And then he decides to kind of like rush in and try something. But for a moment mm-hmm. there, he's like, I guess I have to choose the war over choosing my Does family. Does he really? Because it seems like every time that comes up, he's like, yeah, he says, I was saving one man. The rest of the world could take care of itself. There were some losses I wasn't willing to take no matter what. I lost my brother. That was it. I wasn't losing anyone else. Is that when he goes to the mini mall? Yeah, that's when he goes to the mini mall. Do you think in the in the parking if garage he, he kind of changes yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, when he thinks about the parking garage, it was I thought it was an interesting progression to track. It's like an overt rescue would save my dad and to do must all, including him. Yeah, it's like one. And of then the he things. thinks he's, he's so not an overt rescue, but he's like, well, yeah, he comes up with a different plan. I'll do this weird thing where he's a roach and he crawls onto the guy's head and then Tobias steals. Well, the he jumps onto the guy's beard. <laughs> right, it's very silly. Yeah. Um, but then, then later he has the like Breaking Bad moment where he scrambles off the roof and like sprays the car with the hose, which is like mm-hmm. completely, completely crazy. Mm-hmm. And then at the very end, he's like, okay, I'm going, he decides first, well, I'm going to overtly murder Tom as a tiger and I guess mm-hmm. deal with the consequences. And then yeah, he's what like, what is his dad going to think? Oh, a tiger well, came out of the woods? And yeah, yeah, the animorphs are here and they sort of saved the day, but I guess Tom's there and he's drowning and. Maybe I'll just let him drown because I'm prepared to accept that he's going to die. And then the animals bring him to shore and he kind of like kneels down to comfort him. It's just really interesting that even though he's like freezing in all these moments, he's pulled in so many different directions. And you you get kind of like the, I'm going to be really selfish. Oh, then maybe I'm not. And like, uh, you Mm -hmm. know, I can't quite. I, I, I like Yeah, that. he doesn't stick to a specific stance on Right. It's very circumstance dependent. Uh, that feels very real. I really liked the thing at the end where he froze. Like, they, the dog has just been attacked. And then someone shouts at him, like, demorph. You're in the open. He does. He's like, it just felt so good to just, like, be taking an order. And he's been mm-hmm. sort of holding himself mm-hmm. off from that for so long. And then it felt like with that, he sort of lost the ability to direct his own actions for the next mm. little bit. He was like, Tom's drowning. Like, I wanted someone to tell me what to do. He just sort of had stepped back from responsibility, it seemed like. Or had just become so overwhelmed with the choices. I really liked right immediately after the, um, I was relieved to have the decision made for me. He says, the others had followed me to the cabin. They backed me up, even though I'd said not to. They'd taken the decision out of my hands. Mm-hmm. And I really liked that. My note was just, good job, fam. Like, this is it is something they do for in. each other a lot. Where like they're that. like, oh, this is something this person can't handle. Like, this is too much for them. We're fighting a war. Surprise. It's all too much. Mm-hmm. And and they kind of back each other up like that. Yeah. I like it. It's really good. What did you guys make of his final conversation with Marco? Because they the group shows up and then Jake is like, they all come out of the woods except for Marco. Because yeah. Marco like it thinks that Jake might not want to see him right now. And Jake is like, no, no, Marco, come out. You know, like mm-hmm. I know you came up with this plan. You were right. I was wrong. And then he pulls Marco over to the side. And they make up, or he's, mm-hmm. he says something that's like a little more heartfelt. And he's like, it's that moment you were talking about earlier where he's like, if I ever screw up like this again, then I'll do what you say. Yeah. Like, you can make the call. And then Marco admits, because Jake's like, wait, what if they hadn't been on the dock? Like, what if you hadn't had that opportunity? And he's and, really, Marco tries to avoid answering it for a little bit, but Jake is like really yeah. pressing him. And Marco's mm-hmm. finally like, so if it came down to that, and then Jake's like, no, I don't, I didn't want to know. And 
I think, Gray, you were talking about fault lines in relationships. And I think this is like Jake being cautious, like being aware, like, okay, if I knew the details of Marco's plan to kill my brother, the reason that I am in this war, it would cause a new fault line that I don't want. That's so interesting. I read it a different way, which is, to me, it's a parallel of what Rachel does to Jake in 22, Mm -hmm. where at that moment she was like seeing herself as such a bad guy. And she's Mm -hmm. like, Jake, I just want you to admit that you called me so that I would kill David. Uh And here I feel like Jake's doing the same thing. He doesn't want to hear the details, but he wants Marco to admit that he was like ready to cross this line it's like you're you plan to murder you plan to you plan to murder like my brother right like it would make him feel better about himself yeah because and then they end that conversation where he's like what are we gonna do like what is what what are are we anymore yeah what are are, because he's which is a nice callback to like 15 and 16 it comes up in both where they're both like okay but we're not going to change right have we changed oh no are we changing and and now it's like we've changed no but but I, i feel like the moment is jake being like i've changed i don't know what's going on i feel like it's bad and he's like, and I need you to be bad too. I need you to be here with me. Fortunately, like, they're both there. No, I know, but it's, it's like I feel like it's he. Need, it's something that he could get from Marco or maybe Rachel, but like maybe not Cassie. Yeah. Right. He can't be like, well, Cassie, like you would have, you know, like You're ruthlessly too, murdered right? somebody, right? Yeah. No. And and in fact, he needs Cassie to be kind of this like perfect angel so that he can feel he like also, he has something to hold on to. He also needs Cassie to be on his side in everything, like. And he doesn't love that Marco's calling him to account. But then in the barn where they're taking the vote and Cassie just looks away, he's like, he felt like the ground was falling out from under me. Did Cassie doubt me? Is this thing where he expects like unconditional support or like unconditional endorsement that he is a good person? Like maybe what he wants from Marco is like, yeah, okay, I'm bad too. We're both bad. And what he wants from Cassie is no, don't worry. You're still a good person. Right. How selfish do you think Jake is compared to the other animorphs? Because I think he does a, he makes a lot of selfish calls here. And we I don't were just know. Look at about, Tobias and Megamorph's No, we were just talking about Tobias yeah. being like, I'm done with this mission. I have to save Rachel. But I feel like most of the other Animorphs can be a lot more selfless. Like, it's so interesting that in this book where he has a leadership crisis, yeah. he, really, he really is just looking out for himself. I don't know. I mean, I feel like they all have these moments. Like, Cassie definitely acknowledged her own selfishness in 19. She's like, I just don't want to do this. I don't want to have to be someone who does this thing, even though it's a thing that needs to be done. She calls her own decision selfish. Right. Which, there's an aspect of that. And she says the same thing in 29. But I think there's also a sense of that they come across as more selfish in their in the books that they narrate. Oh, Right. It's when you see their internal decisions, even things that might look more reasonable on the outside. Marco is interestingly, like, more able. I mean, Marco calls this out. He's like, you can't make this call. Not about your dad and your brother. And Jake says, you made it when it was your mom. Marco says, yeah, well, that's me. If it's any comfort to you, I'd like myself more if I was like you. And it is true that to some extent, Marco is able to put aside, this is my mom. And for most of 30, he's able to be clear headed about like, okay, but this is a visitor of the York Empire, and we need to take her down. And then he does sort of give into emotion a little bit at the end. But he's able to sort of set that aside for most of it in a way that Jake can never cleanly do in this book. He's always warring with, okay, but I can't let this happen. Yeah. And there's my favorite moment of this is in the beginning when they're at the mini mall, and it's just Jake and Marco, they've figured out where the sharing meeting is happening. And like, is there some reason why he thinks, why Jake thinks he has to go in right away? Does he just lose it? Yeah, he just doesn't want his dad to be taken. Right. So uh, Marco catches up and he's morphing out of bird morph. And then Jake starts morphing to tiger morph. And he, he's like, I'm going in as his like tiger teeth start appearing. <laughs> 
And Marco's like, Jake, I'm going to have to try and stop you. And Jake sort of like calms down a little bit. And Marco's finally like, if we make this a rescue mission, we are all dead. All of us. Every single one. The Yurks are not idiots. Um, (laughs) Maybe they are, but... Right. They go after your dad. Suddenly the Animorphs attack a minor meeting. They can add two plus two. You let the Yurks know who you are, Jake. How is that going to help your father? And Jake's like, he was right. I knew it, but I didn't want to hear it. And then, like, Marco kind of, like, takes over. Interestingly, though, there's a... Shortly before that, they're talking... Marco's talking about how, like, we we have to be careful or something like that. And Jake says, I don't care. The sympathy on Marco's face evaporated. You're not getting me killed to save your father. Which isn't interesting. Like, it's... Very good point. Shouldn't get all of them killed. The whole war effort doomed to save his father. But that's not what he says. He says, you're not getting me killed. Which I don't know if that's him trying to just make it personal in a different way for Jake or him actually just being more concerned about himself in that moment. I I, I always read Marco as the first thing. (laughs) But he's not very good at manipulating I think he's good at antagonizing people. Like That's true. He's good at manipulating in an antagonistic way. Yeah, yeah. Although he's not the one who figured out David. It's just so interesting that Jake is, he's such a good leader of the Animorphs, and yet he's willing to destroy the entire war to save his dad. Yeah. Right? It's just, yeah. it's just so interesting that he, he can't overcome that basic instinct to mm-hmm. help. And it's, it's like, I think he even says this at one point. It's like, he's been dealing with his, losing his brother this whole time. He's like, mm-hmm. you can't take my dad too, right? Like, yeah. it's like, that's a bridge too far. Like, he has this one thing, like, Marco's got his mom, you know, uh-huh. Jake has his brother, Tobias has the bird thing, you know, he's like. He's like, I can't have two things. Right, I can't have two things. <laughs> That's fair. Okay, so this is a little bit why I still, even though Jake has really done a lot of things up to this point, I still feel like he's more a Gryffindor than a Slytherin. Because I think he isn't able to be cold and calculating about these decisions in a way that like Marco can, and I feel like is a very Slytherin thing. And then also this conversation that he has with Tom all about like honor and courage. And like, this is still something that Jake values and wants to pursue, even though he knows that he's falling short. That conversation is so good. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, there's basically like a whole chapter of Jake and Tom talking when they finally get to the cabin at the end. Yeah, they're, they're going through all of this stuff in the attic, Grandpa G's old war footlocker, and they're talking about all of this, like, memorabilia, and Jake tells this anecdote, the classic, like a yeah, classic Christmas Eve truce, Christmas Eve yeah. truce in wartime <laughs> thing, which is, I think this is a heavily fictionalized <laughs> conflation of several accounts. It definitely felt like they walked into the World War II anecdote store, they found the first thing on the shelf, and they're like, this one. I also, also it doesn't matter, but the Christmas Eve truce to kept place in World War One. Well, no, 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 that's, that's exactly what I was going to say. Oh, which I'm is sorry. Like, I wonder if they were like, let's reference the World War One thing, and then they were like, wait, no, that doesn't make sense with the ages. And it's like, <laughs> great-grandfather, was, you know, like, well, how are we going to make this work? You know, Nazi knife, you know, like... And there, there was, there are some stories out there about the like. That explains why I thought he thing. fought in World War One, and then I was like, wait, why did he have a Nazi knife? And I thought it was World War One because of the Christmas Eve thing, because they were in the trenches. World War Two was not very trench based. There, but the, I mean, yeah, there were still were there trenches. Still trenches. Okay. And the the, but, the the Battle of the Bulge was like this, and it took place on Christmas, mm. but there was notably not a Christmas Day truce. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't do like a lot of research about this. I'm sure there were there were like Christmassy feelings that soldiers brought sure. back and told stories about. But mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. the historical thing is definitely a World War One thing. So anyway, but it, it it works great in the moment because Jake is like you know Christmas when they were all homesick in their foxholes they sang Silent Night. The enemy sang it too in German. Far off they heard it. Both sides lonely for their homes. Both sides wishing the war was over. Tom's like yeah I'm not real big on war stories and 
uh, Jake finds Grandpa G's Silver Star and Purple Heart and is like, he was so brave and honorable. Um, and then Tom says, yeah, well, that was all a million years ago. Honor and courage aren't what matters, not in the real world. What matters is whether you win. After you win, then you start talking about honor and courage. When you're in battle, you do whatever you have to do. Honor and courage and all that, those are the words you say after you've destroyed all your enemies and anyone else who gets in the way. You're wrong, I said flatly. He rolled his eyes, bored now. You're a kid. One of my favorite elements of this is this thing where they are deadly antagonists and Tom has no idea. Yes. It's so, it's such a great element to play with. But it's also that, like, Tom is, in the same way that I I sort of feel like Marco is tempted to be as ruthless as Visser 1, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Jake is tempted to go as far as Tom's yerk is saying he should go in order to win, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Jake is, like, he's, like, willing to, like, kidnap a guy and kind of torture him, or at least threaten to torture him. He was willing just to kill Chapman in in the heat of the moment earlier, by the end of the book, he's willing to kill Tom. Like, Jake is basically willing to blow up the whole war to save his dad. Yeah. So we've talked about how, I know, like, the Gryffindor Slytherin is like, you know, it's a Harry Potter thing. It doesn't have to be the defining thing of their characters. But it does feel very notable to me. Like, it feels like a very useful framework for Jake and Marco. And I think one of the things that I've been a little bit torn about is like, okay, but Jake keeps making all these ruthless decisions. And I think what it is, is that he is like his values and like his natural personality, like are very, very Gryffindor. And that's why it's so incredibly damaging that he keeps having to make these calls and he has to make them. And I think it's less of a stretch for Marco. Like it's just more what comes naturally to him to be ruthless. Like, it's not that it's easy or, like, not at all damaging, but it, like, doesn't twist his fundamental character in a way that it twists Jake's. Yeah. And I think, so I want to read the end of the chapter, too. They come back to this. Jake is like, come on, you should put that dagger away. Like, don't hold on to the Nazi (laughs) dagger. That's, like, a weird thing to do. Don't take it. You have to, you know, tell (laughs) tell mom before you steal Grandpa G's stuff or whatever, right? Um, And so he's like, oh, mom and grandma, this is Tom, you're still such a kid. You think everything's so simple, don't you? That it's all either right or wrong, black or white, a good guy, a bad guy, and nothing in between. And then Jake thinks to himself, no, Eric, I don't. Not anymore. I used to, but I've been across the line. I've done things I can't let myself think about. I know all about the shades of gray. I said, sometimes even the good guys do bad things. Doesn't mean there's no difference between good and evil. Good and evil, he said with a tired smile. Strong and weak. That's the reality. Winners and losers. And it's exactly what you were just saying, yeah. right? It's like, Jake can't think about the bad stuff he's done, but confronted by Tom, he has to, like, articulate, good people do bad things instead yeah. of, we are all bad. <laughs> yeah. I was really intrigued by the conflation of Yerks and Nazis. I mean, not conflation, but association of Yerks and Nazis. Like, specifically, Tom is going to kill Jake's dad with a Nazi dagger. And then Jake has this extended World War II dream where oh, yeah. <laughs> where he's a sergeant, which is perfect. He needs to stop and watching documentaries. <laughs> then how will he reference the USS Nimitz? But no, you know, wait, I, I looked this up because I was like, there must be some other reference. And there is. There's a there's like a 1980 movie where the USS Nimitz gets sent back in time to the day before Pearl Harbor. What? And they meet a senator who mysteriously disappeared before Pearl Harbor. And the senator is like, we have to save people at Pearl Harbor. And the captain is like, no. And then it turns, there's like a whole twist. And, you know, someone gets left behind in time and what? grows up to be an older person. Like, 
Anyway, so that's why I, he knew about the Nimitz? No, I'm just saying that's probably why the Ghost Rider knew. Oh, okay. That makes sense. <laughs> this crazy sci-fi movie from 1980 <laughs> that was ever heard of before. Oh, yeah, but I was saying there's this extended dream where then at the end he's, like, comforting this, like, kid, this soldier who has, like, pneumonia or something. And at the end he's like, I think I hear the Germans singing too. Yerks don't sing, Matthew said. Suddenly he was beside me. He opened his eyes, bared his teeth, and rammed the Nazi dagger straight into my heart. It was just very much like the Nazis and the Yerks are the same a little kind of enemy. Yeah. Which I, I can see why they'd want to draw that connection. Nazis are kind of the, you know, worst enemy ever. Also kind of had this mythical status back in the 90s. Yeah, there was another part where it was really interesting that... Um, so he draws the same parallel in the opening chapter where Jake is introducing himself. Mm-hmm. He like opens it with, you know, my name is Jake, we're in a war. And you're thinking, yeah, right, not a chance. If it's true, then where are the troops storming the beaches? And I was like, they're in Megamore's 3. <laughs> uh, and then like in the same chapter, he says, this is not a clean war if there is such a thing. I mean, a war like World War II, where thousands saw the wrongs being committed and stood up to correct them, where you attacked an enemy you could see, an enemy who wore a uniform and came right back at you, guns blazing. This isn't that kind of war at all. It was so weird to get that right after Megamorphs 3. And that's when I was like, oh, Jake didn't experience Megamorphs 3. Right. I don't know if that was a specific choice on the part of the authors to be like, yeah, and this kid hasn't realized the horrors of war in this way yet, or the horrors of Earth Wars, human wars. I thought that was interesting that, again, Jake is, for all intents and purposes, not Jewish here. It is the other side of his family. Yeah. Right? But, like, the Christmas reference. Oh, yeah. Sort of casually like that just makes me think that Jake's mom and her family are not yeah. Jewish. I guess we have to assume that Rachel's mom is also not Jewish. Because why else would Rachel be like, my father's Jewish? I don't know. The other thing, I do think that that, uh, Jake's mother is very preppy. I don't know if that means that she's a wasp or not. What makes you think that? But your son comes home. You've just received some terrible news. And you say, oh, Grandpa G died. (laughs) That's like the preppiest thing I've ever heard. It's not like... In the summary, Jenny, in fact, what you said was Grandpa G, his Grandpa G has passed on, which uh-huh. is, I think, the way that, like, most people do it. But just, like, your great-grandpa died. See a kid. Gets in the car and drives oh, no. away. And then... She doesn't even start that. She's like, I left you a note on the fridge. That's how he's going to find out that his oh, grandfather no. died because his mom put a post-it on their fridge. Yeah, but it's just, like, just like the, the sort of matter-of-factness and the complete inability to expect and manage another person's emotions... Amazing. I feel like they did much better when Sadler was hit by the car. They, like, were in the living room, and they're like, come sit down. We have bad news. Other side of the family? Was it the other side of the well, family? Well, no, but it was both his parents sitting there. Right. It was the other side of the family, because right, right, it was right, Rachel's right. side Rachel's of the family. Right, yeah. So maybe this is, like, Jake's mom is all upset about her grandfather dying, and, like, isn't, <laughs> it's, like, walled it off. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I, that's, exa- that's exactly yeah. what it is, yeah. because yeah. it's just, you, you've internalized it, and you're, like, stiff upper lip, yeah. Grandpa G died. I thought Jake's reaction was real weird, too. I mean, it wasn't totally unrealistic for, like, a kid who's not very close to his great-grandfather. But he's like, yeah, Grandpa G was alive, and now he's dead, and now my family was smaller. I didn't like that. I was like, what a weird view on it. Not like, oh, specifically, I will miss Grandpa G. My family is smaller. I don't like that. I don't know. Grief leads to weird thoughts. I I really liked her. Uh, He died. Um, we're going to the cabin. Dad will tell you about it. Everything will be fine. Make sure your suit is clean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow, you're amazing. right. You're right, it's amazing. You're so Thanks, right. Mom. Good instructions. I really enjoyed all the the juxtaposition of 
these two people fighting a brutal war and only one, like they both know they're in this war. Only one of them knows the other is in this war, but in the midst of this like very normal family setting where like the family's all standing around. It's like, yeah, I remember, you know, grandpa G came home from the war and he was different. And Tom's like, some people just can't deal with the reality of war. The different layers that gets when you realize like, oh, this is not only someone fighting a war, it's also someone continuously perpetuating the horrors of it onto the year's host like this is someone yeah. who is day like daily torturing someone but also just like they, also humans are weak they're animals right oh, that too yeah they can't take it yeah i also so there is this some people just can't take it jake has the same opinion at the end right so the the very last chapter is after he's talked to mm-hmm. marco but the way that he finally recontextualizes his grandpa g is he so they have the funeral mm-hmm. jake says like everybody cried i know i did so, like, he's able to, like, actually let his emotions out with his family at the end, which I thought was really sweet, because he's yeah. been, like, holding it in and not able to really, Aww. like, show them to Marco this whole time, right? But then he thinks about the end of the war. The note he answers on is, I'm going to need, like, a lockbox where I can keep all of my, like, trauma. <laughs> like, like <laughs> people might think I'm a hero or not or whatever, but, like... If I get medals, I'm not going to want to display them. I'm right. He's, be- he's, he's acknowledging that, like, Grandpa G was a hero, but most heroes also have a lot of trauma that no one really wants to deal with and they don't want to deal with. I liked the bit where I guess Grandpa G's daughter, Jake's grandmother, gets the flag at the funeral. Said she and the worn, grizzled men looked at each other for a long, quiet moment as if sharing a memory, a lifetime of experiences only they can understand. I understood it, though. Maybe not their war, but ours. And it's, like, really nice and really heartbreaking at the same time. Like, it's it's nice that he's able to have this sort of shared experience, but he can't actually let anyone know about it. He has to keep yeah. it secret. Yeah. So in a way, he has this common ground with his his grandmother and these other people in his family, but it's not a, it's a common ground he has to hide. Right. The other Jake on war thing I thought was interesting was he talks a lot about, like, going on the attack versus being on the defensive and how yeah. it's so much worse to be on the defensive defensive constantly waiting you can't control things it could go wrong it's the air exposition normally right and even earlier than that when he before he realizes that he needs to be monitoring tom and his dad at all times he thinks oh tom has to go away for four days like this is a chance like we can do something like we can rescue tom like briefly he's like i want to take action right Mm -hmm. and then he's like forced into this position of (laughs) oh no Tom's going to strike at any moment. He and Rachel are like are alike in that way. Yeah. Where they both would rather yeah. take action. I thought some of Jake's thoughts on his dad were interesting. I don't think we really knew much about Jake's dad. Like, there's that whole thing where they were watching the fight, like, and having right. a boys' night. And that was like the well. Most... Now we know we know all about the family. Uh-huh. One brother became a doctor, and one became a handsome TV broadcaster. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. I don't. Yeah, he, Jake's dad seems to be a pediatrician. He's like really patient with all the kids. I liked, Jake has these thoughts about how his dad is a good guy, not just because he was my dad, but because he was a good person. He did his work as well as he knew how and wasn't a jerk to the people around him. Doesn't make you a saint or anything, but I guess when I think about it, that's what I hope I'll do when I'm older. And that's what we got in, in book 16 also when he is having the dinner with his family and he's like, why can't people just be happy with this? Why do people like invade each other? Why don't they just want to sit around with their families and just be happy? And that's so clearly what Jake wants out of life. Mm -hmm. Like more than any of the others, I feel like he just wants that sort of quiet, normal life where he can be like some sort of respectable person in a community and basically treat people well. Mm -hmm. 
and instead he's leading this defense of all of Earth, and it's really hard. Yeah. I want to talk about the cockroach bit, <laughs> just very briefly. It so, was someone has to read about the jam, because that was like the funniest <laughs> paragraph I've ever read. So I don't have it, it's going to be you. I, I, I foresaw this going poorly, but yeah. he's just... <laughs> it's just the phrase nerf meteor. It's <laughs> so a glass shard. Swathed in, glue, in goo, landed like some kind of Nerf meteor beside me. <laughs> so he morphs into, Jake morphs into a cockroach. And his plan is he's going to sneak into the kitchen while his dad is making breakfast and then hide in his the cuff of his dad's work pants mm-hmm. to go to work with him. So that is so gross. <laughs> so, 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 You know so, what? So it's gross. a good plan, though. Solid. It's a solid plan in that, like... <laughs> Yes, he gets to go to work, but also you have smaller morphs. And also, <laughs> I would lose my damn mind if I found a cockroach in my pant leg. What like, if that cockroach were your child? Not better. I, <laughs> Except because I could not then squish it. I would take off my pants and destroy them. Like, instead, <laughs> instead of going about my day. Yeah, yeah. His dad, so his dad sees, so the jam falls to the ground and shatters as Jake is like running across the floor to his dad's leg. The jam goes everywhere. And of course, then his dad sees him and <laughs> tries to squish him. So that's the USS Nimitz <laughs> lands on the floor. And then the USS Eisenhower lands next to it. <laughs> and so he runs up his dad's leg in order to hide, but he's on the sock between the sock and the cuff mm-hmm. and then goes to lick the jam off of himself because it is delicious and his dad feels him and like freaks out because of course he does and so he's like trying to get the cockroach off of him and as he does that, Jake runs up and into the pant leg and the pant leg dropped down my dad wiped up the preserves and the broken jar and drove to work. Okay, <laughs> Everything I owned would be burnt to burnt to the ground, including possibly house. the house. Like, no. Jake's mom comes home and is like, what did you do? And he's like, there was a cockroach. It was She's huge. Like, Trust me, this is better. It was covered in jam. Like, absolutely horrible. Like, And also, the whole scene is hilarious, and I felt so bad for Jake. You know, he's going to find jam in that cough later and be like, oh, no. <laughs> Also, my one quick other thing about this is about the morph itself. This ghostwriter gets it that these morphs are always <laughs> disgusting because every single morph was described in the most horrible way. They are the worst morph descriptions we've gotten in really? several books. Really? There's the, uh, you don't want to watch your skin melt like wax under a blowtorch and then reform into hard, stiff armor. That's the cockroach. Oh, fine. My very least favorite one, I'm just going to go I remember it. when he was demorphing on the roof and he was holding on, his fingernails were basically liquid. Yep, that, that one was, was also very good. That was a really cool, like, that was a very effective image, though, for, like, why he was having trouble hanging on. Yes, it's true. Uh, the one that creeped me out the very most uh, was the rhinoceros morph. Mm-hmm. I heard the thin bone of my human skull crunch and split apart, heard a sound like grinding teeth as new bone, layers and layers of new bone, filled in the gaps and made an almost impenetrable armor. Is that weirder than normal? That feels normal to me. Bone crunching! Uh, you have a thing about bone working? crunching, that's right. Most people do. <laughs> yes! So, fun fact, this is our first repeat ghostwriter. Who is this one from? Do you want to guess? <laughs> it's probably is it the first one? I don't know. No, so this person also wrote 27. That was that had oh, no. some really gross morphs. I do remember those. I didn't make note of these. And... 
get excited because this person wrote one more, book 39. <laughs> the one I don't remember. Amazing. I can't wait. Yeah. And it's actually just yeah, looking no at this list. No one spoiled me for 39. Looking at this list of repeat ghostwriters, it's really interesting. There are a few that only wrote one, mm-hmm. but most of them wrote more than one. And that will be really interesting to track. The person who wrote 33 wrote actually five of them. Ooh, She's like the most prolific. It's very interesting. So I had random thoughts on other characters. Can we talk Rachel and Tobias, please? <laughs> I held it so long. Okay, please go yeah, for it. Jump right in. So lots of cute things. One that is less cute than the best one is uh, Jake says, we're in a kidnap Chapman. <laughs> oh, yeah, I like this. Tobias laughed like I might be joking. <laughs> then he sort of moaned. Then he laughed again and said, well, I'll say one thing. This is going to make Rachel happy. <laughs> and then later, adorable. we hooked up with Rachel and Axe and explained the plan. Rachel said, cool. Yep. Pretty much. Very good. Tobias knows her. Uh, he definitely does. And then... And loves her. Loves her. When they are in the, in the scene where they're voting? Yeah, it's when they're talking about how Tom doesn't have any other choices. Tobias says, you know, maybe I'm not getting it, but why didn't Tom just tell your father he's not going and that's the end of it? I looked at him. So did the rest of us. What? He said, I used to do that whenever one of my aunts or uncles wanted me to go somewhere I didn't go. They never made me go. He was quiet a moment. Then, abashed, he said, oh, duh. They didn't care what I did. Your relatives are jerks and they didn't deserve you, Rachel snapped. Which, yes, it's yes. So true. So good. So much. So sad. And like, poor Tobias. And he's yeah. just like an open book with all of his angst. Yeah. Like, he doesn't recognize that he's even revealing anything I at this know. moment. Because he doesn't recognize just, that it's Rachel's not normal. so quick. Oh, yeah. She is there right away. This is why he will lose everything if she is in the kind of danger she was in Megamorph's 3. Because she's very important to him. She's also completely correct. Yes. Oh, correct. yes. Definitely correct. Yes, I loved that. There were some good axe moments. Um, I have a question, yeah. which is the term, axe uses the term facial fur. <laughs> what does that say about Andalite's capacity to have universally symbolic language? <laughs> is there no universally symbolic distinction between fur and hair? You know, maybe Axe just used the wrong universally symbolic word because he thinks of it as fur, not as the kind of hair people have on their heads. Maybe he doesn't realize that humans are hypoallergenic. (laughs) (laughs) He's just been sneezing all over the place. Uh, One Axe language thing I really liked. So Axe has just gone off about how torturing Chapman is just, you know, really antithetical to his honor and can't believe he had to do this. And Jake's like, it was my fault. And Axe is like, no, my actions are my actions and my responsibility, which I really liked. And then he says, I must play out the charade. And I read that. I was like, oh, he probably just said charade because, you know, he probably just said that. It was probably a universal symbol. And I was like, no, he's been watching soap operas. <laughs> he definitely said, I must play out this charade. That's he delightful. says he said That's it wearily. Really yeah. I also really liked this example of Andalite humor that no one else, no one in the book recognized. I do not believe this man is a controller, Axe said, of the guy in the parking garage. What was your first clue, Axe man? Tobias said. My first clue is the fact that this human is not... It was a rhetorical question, Tobias. <laughs> <laughs> ah. Very, very excellent. He also, when Rachel, when they're talking about the funeral, says, you will not attend this burial ceremony, Rachel? No, I'm not really related, Rachel said. Grandpa G was Jake's great-grandfather on his mother's side. We're related on his father's side. Ah, and that is important. <laughs> Definitely scathing and delight sarcasm that no one picked up on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's so funny. He really is. 
What did you make of um, Jake's take on the chi in this book? Jake's like the chi are a race of androids, pacifist by design, but definitely anti-Yurk. The ultimate spies are friends. At least as much as a nearly eternal machine can ever be a friend to a weak, short-lived human. What's your take, Jenny? <laughs> Thanks for being friends with me. I us. think it's eminently possible. So what he's saying is that they are extremely friends because it is a thing okay, that can happen. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry. But it does maybe indicate that Jake feels a little insecure in his, like, relations with the Chi, that, like, they're looking down on them as, like, weak and short-lived. They're like the ultimate Cassies. It's like a whole <laughs> species of judgmental, holy <laughs> people. Who've lived forever. And they don't, Eric does not have a crush on him. True. He doesn't know how Eric sees him. Although he is taller than Eric, maybe that helps. Oh, speaking of which, there's a thing he calls the school to, like, call himself out. He's like, luckily, I sound enough like my father. Yep. Oh, yeah. like, okay. He said. Well, based on him. like 28, which was pretty recent, it's like he lowered his voice to try to sound like an adult. It's possible that when he says he thinks he sounds enough like his father, he's just fooling himself. Hard to say. Or maybe his dad's just got like a really reedy, you know. <laughs> Teenage voice. Oh, um, I have one funny thing, which is that uh, so they crash through the Chapman's house and just destroy it. It's like a oh, rhinoceros yeah. and a gorilla just knocking. And they get shot over. like in the head a lot. Yeah, Jake gets shot point blank in the head. With Apparently, a Dracon beam and with like bullets. Yes, and the bullets are somehow slightly more effective, although possibly it's because he's already been shot. Might by the be very close beam. range and he already yeah was shot in the head. And I would just like to point out that all of the insurance adjusters for this entire town are going to get hella fired. <laughs> I loved the thing, speaking of insurance, where Jake's dad's car just got punched in the parking lot of this meeting. He rushes out. He's like, I have to go home. And Tom is like, no, just come back, come back into this meeting. And Jake's dad is like, no, I'm going home right now and calling Joe Johnson. Tom's like, who? It's like, he's our insurance agent. You really should know that, Tom. Come on. Which was such a dad lecture. I loved it. And also their insurance agent has the most generic name in the world. Oh, hey, you know, one other tiny thing that would have helped with the Chapman uh, kidnapping thing? What? Is if anyone else had gotten an axe morph by this point. Time for all of you to get an axe morph. Just do it. Yeah, well, they don't really need to be in an axe morph to interrogate him. Well, he's like, he's like blindfolded. Oh, yeah, that's true. But they could just be in some sort of animal morph, thought speaking. But yes, yeah. Also, just get an axe morph already. Yeah, good point. So speaking of the chi, which we were, I really was amused by this incredibly 90s exchange that they have over a payphone. So it's already very not today. Where Eric is like, oh, okay, your dad has a cell phone. And I was like, oh, he's going to be able to track the cell phone. And no, no, he cannot track the cell phone. He he wants Jake to call his father and Eric will somehow tap the call and then analyze the noises he hears on the other end. But he cannot actually triangulate the call from like cell towers or anything because clearly Apple Grant and the Ghost Traders had no idea that was a possibility. I'm pretty sure if he can tap into a call that he's not supposed to be on, he could also triangulate it. But they did not know that. So there were a lot of, like, references to... Were there 90s references? There were a lot of references to things that were not specifically 90s, where I looked up and I was like, oh, no, that's not just 90s. I mean, there was, like, Twilight Zone reference, there was an Alien movie reference. There were several Nerf references, and I was like, was that a big 90s thing? Apparently it started in the 70s, so no. 
I mean, it was still big in the 90s. Yes, yeah. There were references to Save the Children infomercials, and um, I don't know if that was, like, a particularly 90s thing. Uh, there was a computer store named Computer Renaissance. <laughs> what does that mean? I love that. <laughs> Is it like, oh, computers, they kind of dipped, but now we're bringing them back? Like <laughs> They're back, baby. Yeah. In, like, 2001, that would make more sense, but I'm mm. assuming that the software bubble is still going strong. Yeah, yeah. Marco has a reference to a Red Ball maximum panic situation. Oh, Did yeah. you guys recognize that? No. no. What was that? Okay, so I looked that up because I was like, that has to be a pop culture reference. And I looked it up and I found this game called Red Ball, and I was like, no, wait, this appeared in 2008. It turns out that what he was referring to was a term used by the U.S. Air Force, typically on the flight line, to identify aircraft maintenance issues that could prevent an on-time launch of aircraft. It's I like, like that. That's, that's kind of, it's a cool. Very I mean, like obscure. He's, he's studying. Like he's is, studying Marco all, yeah. is Marco also studying military history? Yeah, I bet they're okay. just nerds about it. Teenage okay. boys into it was probably in a video game stuff. at some point. Yeah. yeah, or like war movies. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I, I didn't have a lot of other things. I did my rants. <laughs> I felt I, I, yeah, I think it's just maybe the mood I was in when I read this but I felt like Jake's I just want to be a normal guy with no responsibilities to other people in the world it's like <laughs> very like middle class white kid in the 90s yeah. worldview I was like come on man I don't know I feel like his thoughts about his dad were a little bit more nuanced than that like it was a little bit more like He's doing the right thing by all the people around him. Like, right. he has responsibilities, right. just not, you know, fighting a war-level responsibilities. No, it's, it's very relatable, but <laughs> I wanted to give Jake a hard time about it. <laughs> There's a lot to give Jake a hard time about in this book. That's true. Yeah. I was probably already, he was probably already on the ass with me. <laughs> For being incredibly selfish and wanting to do yeah. more effort to save yeah. his dad. Before we get to predictions, uh-huh. specifically for the next book, I have a prediction. For the yeah. full series. <gasps> My favorite card. I wonder if it's the same as the prediction Lauren submitted on our website today, which was also great. Should, should we read that one? No, it was just that it would end in a double wedding, but go on. <laughs> she, yeah, she made it. She made like an Austin reference, and then like you could see the thoughts took into place, and she was like, wait, maybe the end course will end with a double wedding. <laughs> yeah, so that's that what we want to have. So it. happy. I'm in. Yeah. Done. Canon. No, uh, Marco at the end uh-huh. of this book is explaining his thought process to Jake. Yeah. And he says to him, It was pretty clear after I thought about it that if Tom killed your father, you'd lose it. Like a chess game. Tom takes your father, you take Tom. Marco is going to become oh, no. an Elamist. <laughs> Wait, what? He's playing chess. He did reference, <laughs> he did reference playing chess yes. uh, in book 30 at like, as a metaphor for what he was doing with the Vissers. Everyone else is ants on the chessboard, but Marco's playing chess. He's going to become an Elamist. <laughs> Wait, so, okay. So your prediction isn't that... Tom will kill Jake's dad, and Jake will kill Tom at like the end of the series. Is Marco the Elemist, or is he just dating the Elemist? Uh, he could be <laughs> dating the Elemist. I was thinking more specifically, he was be- going to become his like protege. Can and you imagine like, dating ascend. the Elemist? So wait, no, he's like, so wait, 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 wait. So, so <laughs> you would never be right. They would, they would always be so right. So Cryak sends the drone out to do something, uh-huh. <laughs> and then here comes Marco busting in. <laughs> he would have so much panache. <laughs> That would be <laughs> or he would amazing. Think he <laughs> amazing. I just want like a Drode versus Marco battle of wits throughout all time. Yep. Oh my god. Yeah. The thing is, Marco's like, hold his own. They're kind of perfect for each other because I don't think they would ever get tired of hating the other person. That's <laughs> true. And they have a long time to do it in. They're, yeah. they're both going to be. So that's book 53. <laughs> all right. I'm really looking forward to Marco becoming an Elvis protege. 
And then, you know, that might take him out of commission for the double wedding. They might need a different best man. I mean, the elements can get married. It's fine. <laughs> well, he wasn't going to be one of the people getting married at the double wedding, just to be clear. Oh, I haven't read it yet. But, so I assume it's Cassie and Jake and Rachel and Tobias. I'm not sure if Lauren specified, actually. Why not? Well, she was talking about the relationship. She was talking oh, about okay. how the kiss was undersold oh, in yeah, Megamorphs 3. And yeah. then that's, that's where it all came from. Why not a triple wedding? And then Axe and Mark could finally get together. Yeah, she did not posit that, but that that could be what happens. Of course, we would never confirm or deny. I do one thing that I just saw in my notes I would like to point out is that Axe looks like one of the mid-morph images from the cover of 8. We know exactly (laughs) what he looks like. (laughs) Yeah. Like the second to final one. The second to final one. ultimate morph image. I want to look at that image now and see what... (laughs) What Chapman saw when he opened the door. <laughs> From which book? Eight. Yeah, there's just like, there's a lot of really Alien. good writing about like Jake's feelings and how like tense it is. Like, Sorry, Ted, do you want to say that again when we're not muttering the background? No, no, it's not that interesting. <laughs> it's just like, I really liked this. Like a lot of these are just like, there's not a lot to say about it, but it's really serving up that like Jake's angst about the situation. And it, it's almost, it's like a little incoherent in a realistic way where he's mm-hmm. like, he's really pulled by his emotions and he's mm-hmm. feeling physically overwhelmed so that he can't think straight. It, it really comes through in the text. A lot. Yeah. There's actually a line where he says incorrectly, as it turns out. Uh, so this is after he has made, he he's made the plan to kidnap Chapman at the spur of the moment um, when he's put on the spot and he says, Sometimes emotion works for you. <laughs> Not in this case, buddy, but like, sure, sometimes. <laughs> but nice thought. Yeah, I did really like that he came up with that plan because Marco was like, wait, uh, I have a... And Jake's like, no, I have a plan. Because he just needed something to like assert his leadership. And then it was a pretty bad plan. So yeah, you're right. Didn't work out for him. Prediction time. Are we ready to talk about the separation? Yeah, I am, I'm so excited. I am so excited. I, we, we're going to need to vet the inside cover to see if it's okay for you to look at. But let's talk about the outside cover first. I just, I understand that we're running out of good animals, but like, this is not better. Better than what? what Anything is it, else. So it's Tell the worst? Are you saying it's the worst? It's really bad. It's not a, is it the worst? It's not the worst. It's bad. I think it's great. The worst is, to me, the still the spider one. Okay, uh, this is, it's The Separation. It is a Rachel book. I think this might be a new Rachel model. Oh, no, maybe it's the same one. I don't know. It's her top. Maybe she just got older. Um, she is turning into a starfish. Amazing. What a terrible morph. <laughs> Amazing. That is completely useless. Oh, my god! So why do you think she's I love, turning into a starfish? Wait, I genuinely love every single one of these men morphs. They are so funny. They are so funny. <laughs> I would, I would watch like a cone head. Yeah, I would watch like an alien species in any, like any of these would just like ten of them running Actually, around. Yeah, the second really to last like one them. is basically Patrick from SpongeBob. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. And then the the one in the middle reminds me a little bit of one of the aliens in Doctor Who. And then oh, the first yeah. one's just a, a cone head. Yeah, I I think that this cover is is actually one of the best ones. It is it's amazing. Bananas. So what is the subtitle text say? You can look at the inside if you want. Yeah, it's... Is it helpful? No. <laughs> uh, the, the little cut text is, uh, everything changes, but not quite like this. <laughs> yeah. It adds nothing. Okay. What well, is the inside The inside is, is, a, is a tide pool, I guess, with a bright red starfish. So, so why do you think she's morphing a starfish? the least useful morphing I've ever thought of. Especially for Rachel. Rachel, what are you doing? You can't, like, starfish don't really move. (laughs) 
Um, Do they not move at all? I mean, they can. Okay. Like, they don't much. It's not like they're particularly mobile as a... Not very agile. Yeah, okay. She needs to do something underwater. Maybe they're gonna sneak her into the yerk pool and she's gonna, like, be able to stick herself to the side of the pool. (laughs) So, stealth? Surveillance? What's the angle here? Uh, she's gonna do that in order to connect with someone in the Yurk Resistance. And so they're gonna have a little conference on the side of the pool? Yeah, they're gonna chat. Okay. And, um, maybe something about her dad. Like, her dad comes back and okay. she's got a family kid or something. Yeah, like, there's been two books in a row, I think. Maybe. So, so what is, five books what is the separation? Uh, it's her parents' separation. Oh. What was the conspiracy? <laughs> I don't know. What was the conspiracy, right? The Animorphs conspire to save Jake against his will. I mean, the Yerks were Tom conspiring conspires to, to kill yeah. your dad. Yeah. That's so grim pretty ridiculous. The this is why I'm so bad at predicting these books. Because <laughs> not only does the cover image not usually help me, even the title is, like, mostly useless. You know, I feel like it's a more useful title than most. Maybe one of her arms gets separated, and then she has to grow back. <laughs> and that's why being a starfish is so useful. I like Amazing. It. What do they do with the extra arm? It's how she gets away. Like a gecko tail. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's not so actually exactly. how it works, but yeah. sure. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. I'm this looking also, forward to it's, this. It's an Apple Grant book. The last Apple yeah. Grant book until the last two, except for the like Mega Marks and, yeah. and Chronicles. Why? I don't know. They maybe they had just time. Didn't, they probably didn't find a ghost <laughs> for it, to be honest. But. That's a good point. That is probably what happened. <laughs> okay. Well, I can't wait to talk about it. Yeah. Look forward to it. Next, Next time. time. If you want to find us, we are at animorphology.com and at animorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. And if you want to read along, you can find a link to the books on our website. We just bleep because it's like it's like a striptease. Exactly. Yeah.